Skip Heitzig has been a member of the board of directors of Samaritan's Purse for, I don't know, maybe about 13, maybe 15 years, quite a while. And not only is he a board member, but he is a, a personal friend. Uh, Skip and Linya uh, live in Albuquerque, pastors, Calvary Chapel, Al- Albuquerque, one of the largest churches. Uh, I think it is the largest church in the state. Uh, it is uh, a huge facility. But the beautiful thing about the ministry is that the church has grown on Bible teaching uh, and evangelism. Uh, Skip teaches the Bible and he gives an invitation every week. And every week there are dozens and dozens of people that get up out of their seats uh, and come stand in front of that, that pulpit to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the church has grown through evangelism. And to, to go to his church is exciting because they, he, he'll tell the audience, he'll say, Franklin's coming next week, make sure you bring a lost friend. And all he has to do is just mention it. He doesn't have to hammer it home. He doesn't have to keep reminding him. Just He just mentions it, and the church is packed, overflow. Everybody's brought a, a, a lost friend. And when you give an invitation, there's, there's just a flood of people who come. And it's a great church to, to speak in. I, I get a chance to speak in his church in just a couple of weeks as I'll be there for the dedication and collection of some of the shoeboxes that they collect in the New Mexico area. But Skip and Lenya uh, are great friends, uh, uh, a great servant of the Lord, been a tremendous help to this ministry and to me, and how much I appreciate this friendship and uh, his faithfulness to the Word of God. Skip, you come. Open up the Word. And thank you for being here. And I'm sorry you have to put up with Paul down there, but... Thank you, Frank. You know, we all have our thorns. <laughs> Just listening to that last song and those languages, I couldn't help but think how great heaven's going to be. Every tribe and tongue and nation gathered, worshiping the Lord in their language, and we'll be able to understand all of them. I can't wait. That was really great. I want to share with you tonight, out of Exodus chapter 33 and 34, um, before we do, I just want to add my thanks to the Graham team, and especially Dr. Billy Graham, because it was 1973 that I was watching a broadcast in San Jose, California, my brother's apartment. And I was all alone, and I had run away from my friends who I call Jesus freaks down in Southern California, and I was up in an apartment, and Billy Graham was preaching at a crusade, and I thought I was safe watching it on television. Little did I know. As I watched, I felt convicted, and I thought to myself, it's a good thing that I'm not in that audience because I would come down on that field like all the rest. It's a good thing I'm safe behind this television. And just as I said that, Dr. Graham turned right to the television and said, if you're watching by television, right now you can pray to receive Christ. And I I thought he read my mind. I turned it off very quickly. And about 10 minutes later, after having a little wrestling match with the Holy Spirit, I yielded my life to Christ. So I am so grateful for the faithfulness to the Word. And I'm thankful to Franklin and his leadership of these organizations for his friendship. And what I love about Franklin 
is that no matter what situation he's in, he is going to make a beeline for the cross in every situation. I watched him last night as he was being interviewed by Greta Van Susteren, and as she asked him a question about the birthday party, he went right to talk about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And Franklin, we're just grateful for your faithfulness to that message. God bless you. We live in the computer age, and in the computer age, as soon as you buy a computer, it's outdated, right? You've got to upgrade, and every time you buy a program, you have to upgrade. Um, relationships with people are so different than relationships with technology. When you have a relationship with a person, it takes commitment. And a lot of people talk about upgrading and moving from one to the other. Relationship takes a lifelong commitment. I was given this little email by somebody. Dear tech support at mailintellect.com. Last year I upgraded from boyfriend 5.0 to husband 1.0. And I noticed that the new program began making unexpected changes in the accounting modules like limiting access to flower and jewelry purchases that had operated flawlessly under boyfriend 5.0. In addition, husband 1.0 uninstalled many valuable programs such as romance 1.0 and replaced them with undesirable programs like NFL 5.0 and NBA 3.0. Conversation 8.0 no longer runs, and house cleaning 2.6 simply crashes the program. <laughs> now, I've tried running nagging 5.1 to fix these problems, but to no avail. Please advise, sign desperate. Dear desperate, they write back. Keep in mind, boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package, <laughs> while husband 1.0 is an operating system. <laughs> Try to enter the command C colon forward slash I thought you loved me and immediately install tears 6.2. <laughs> Husband 1.0 should automatically run guilty 3.0 and flowers 7.0 which will take care of the problem. Under no circumstances are you to install mother-in-law 1.0 or a new boyfriend program. These are not supported applications and will crash Husband 1.0. In summary, Husband 1.0 is a great program, but has limited memory <laughs> and cannot learn applications quickly. Signed, the support team. Two weeks ago, I had a privilege of performing the wedding of my son, Nate, to his now wife, Janae. And I was able to perform it on the very spot that 22 and a half years previously I had dedicated him to the Lord. It was a moving moment for me, to say the least. But I do want to say that he really did upgrade his life in making that choice. I watched these two together. 
I watched them as they learned to like each other, develop a relationship with each other that developed into an an intense liking, and then a romance, and then a mature love. I watched the upgrade happen from boyfriend to husband 1.0. It's beautiful to watch that kind of mature love, and I was privileged to perform that wedding. But a relationship with any person at all takes commitment, time, and the willingness to disclose yourself. You can't hide. You have, to, you have to open up and tell people who you are. Well, in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, it's a great story about God opening up himself to Moses as God reveals some of the characteristics that define him as God, some very memorable characteristics. Now, in this section, Moses desires an upgrade in his relationship with the Lord. He wants to know God better than ever before. His heart cry is to know the Lord and see his glory. But that's not how the story begins. The story begins with a downgrade. The children of Israel are are in a real pickle. They have sinned against God. Moses goes up to the mountain to receive God's revelation. And while he's up on the mountain getting God's revelation, the people quickly turn to their own imagination. They want some visible reminder, a calf. You know the story. Moses has taken too long, and so they go up to Aaron and they say, we don't know what's happened to Moses, but we want, we want an image. We want a calf. And so Aaron gets their gold, and the image is cast. Why a calf? Why a golden calf? I think the best answer to that would be conditioned response. You may know that in Egypt, where the children of Israel had lived for so many years, they had watched the Egyptian pantheon, the worship of so many different kinds of gods. They were polytheistic. And the representation in Egypt of the God of strength and power was a God that was a calf, and often a golden calf, known as Apis, A-P-I-S, Apis the bull. And according to Egyptian legend, light flashed out of heaven and struck a cow, and Apis, the bull god, the symbol of strength and power, was born. Now, remember when the children of Israel go up to Mount Sinai, and they're camped at the bottom, and Moses goes up to receive the commandments, and the Bible says that the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, there was thunder and there was lightning, and no doubt all of that episode served as a reminder of the legend that they heard back in Egypt. So they simply wanted to make an image that represented one of the attributes of their powerful God, strength, ability. But the truth is they were breaking the second commandment, one of the very commandments that God was in the process of giving Moses up on the mountain. And so they made the image and they broke God's law. I have a question. Why did they do this? Why was it important for this new group of people who had left Egypt and going into a new land, why was it important for them to have this image? And here's the best reason, I think. 
People have a problem with an invisible God. They want to see something. If you think about it, it's awfully difficult to have a relationship with a person, a personal relationship with a person you never see. You can't watch their body language, the expressions on their face, and yet to have a personal relationship with the ultimate person who is invisible, it's difficult. We don't like to live by faith. We would much rather live by sight. We remember the story of the invisible man. What a great idea that sounds like at first. Wouldn't it be great to be invisible? You could go anywhere you want, listen to conversations, see things, and get much more information than you have in the visible world. However, as the story goes on that H.G. Wells writes, The Invisible Man, the man who became invisible finds out that it's not so great a blessing after all. Nobody trusts him. They can't see him. They can't relate to somebody who's invisible. It's like the little boy who said to his mother, are you sure God is up there? And she said, of course, I know God is up there, sweetheart. And he, as a little boy, said, but wouldn't it be great if he'd poke his head out once in a while so we could see him? We can relate to that. Even Isaiah, in chapter 45 of his book, said, truly, you're a God who hides himself. And one of the great anticipations you and I have as New Testament believers is that one day we're promised that we will see God face to face. That's our hope. That's our anticipation. In fact, what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 2, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until that day, you and I are called to walk by faith and not by sight. But the promise is those who walk by faith will one day be rewarded by the ability to walk by sight. Another question is, why is this so bad? Why is it even written in the Ten Commandments on God's top ten list of things not to do? Number two, you shall have no carved, graven images. Why is that such a big deal that God would forbid people to cast any image of Him as a visible reminder? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. There is no image in all the world that can represent God in His totality. God, by His very nature, is unlimited. As soon as an image is cast, you have limited the Holy One of Israel. You've you've put borders on God. It's limiting God to make Him into an image. And so the calf was not an upgrade, it was a downgrade. They were trying to capture an aspect of God, but in reality they were denying His nature. For example, though that golden calf may represent to the people God's strength, that golden calf said nothing about His moral attributes like love and kindness and patience and forgiveness and all of the other aspects that God is. Well, as the story progresses, Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and he sees what the people have done in making this golden image, and his wrath is kindled, as was God's. And then Moses 
comes to Aaron and says, Aaron, what's up with this? Now, this is a little free translation. This is the NSV, the New Skip version. Uh, What's up with this? And Aaron says, oh, Moses, you know these people. They're so stubborn. They wanted this. It's really not my fault. And so they wanted an image because you've taken so long. So I took the gold from off of them and I threw it into the fire. And this calf just walked out. That was Aaron's lame excuse. And if there would have ever been a top 10 list of the most lame excuses in all the world, this would have to rank up in the top three. We threw the gold in the fire, and this calf just walked out. Excuses go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, don't they? It was the woman that you gave me, Lord. That's the problem. Mankind has been filled with excuses. I talked to a police officer recently who said, Skip, you wouldn't believe the excuses I get from people that I pull over. He said, I pulled over a guy who was speeding who said, Officer, I was speeding because I have to get in front of you because I'm low on fuel and I'm trying to get to a gas station. Lame excuse. And some people have those same kind of excuses when it comes to why they don't give their lives to Christ, why they don't serve the Lord, why they're willing to give God second best instead of all of their lives, utmost, highest priority. It's an excuse. The best definition I heard of an excuse was, it's the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. That's what this was. So the story begins there. There's a revolt in the camp of Israel. It's it's a downgrade situation. Now that's followed by a request that Moses makes. Because of the episode with the golden calf, the Lord says, Moses, I'm not going to be going with you on this journey. My presence will not go with you. I'm going to send an angel instead. Now this really aggravated the children of Israel and it really broke Moses' heart. So in chapter 33 is a beautiful conversation that Moses has with God. God, you've got to go with us. I need to know your way. And the Bible says that God and Moses were speaking like friends would speak in close association as a man would speak to a friend. But the culmination of Moses' prayer is found in Exodus chapter 33 where he says these words beginning in verse 18. And he said, Please, Lord, show me your glory. And then he, the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. That was Moses' request from the heart. Lord, show me your glory. It's safe to say that Moses wanted to experience everything possible with God. He wanted every possible earthbound experience that he could have, even if possible, to see God, the visibility of God. He was disappointed with the idolatry of his people, and he wasn't after that. It wasn't, God, 
I want an image. That's a downgrade. I want the upgrade. I want the real deal. I don't want to see an image. I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I find that that longing is a God-given longing to be as close to God as we possibly can while we make this earthly journey. For example, Paul the Apostle, he walked 30 years with Christ, and after 30 years, he writes this, I want to know Him, that I might know Him, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable even unto His death. What I've had is great, but I want to know you more. That cry to see God was also echoed in the New Testament by Philip, who said, along with his buddies, to Jesus, show us the Father, and we'll be happy. That's all we need. Well, yeah, it would be for anybody. Show us the Father, and it will be sufficient. Well, what does Moses mean when he says, show me your glory? Well, the Hebrew word is kabod, and literally kabod means to be heavy or weighty. And the idea, typically in the Bible, refers to somebody's weighty reputation or exalted position. One translation puts it this way, I want your own self to be seen. In other words, God, if at all possible, I want a full disclosure of your glorious person. God says, well, Moses... If you see my whole glory, if you see me with your face in your human form and you see my glorious form, you'll die. No man can see me and live. It's like a fly getting too close to those fly zappers. They're attracted by the light, and it looks so good. And so they go over there, and they get too close, and that's what would happen to Moses. Now, God gives him some experience as the Lord passes by, the text says. But something else comes to my mind. Here's a question. Why would Moses even ask for this upgrade? Now, I just want you to think what you know about Moses from your Bible reading. Up to this point, what he's already experienced. Moses has experienced in his own life more than most people who are followers of God ever get a chance to see even a part of. For instance, a bush talked to him one day. The Lord spoke to him out of a burning bush. I've never had that happen to me. Uh, Moses was able to see plagues fall upon his enemies in Egypt and deliver his people out of the affliction of Egypt. He was able to watch a body of water part in two and the children of Israel go on dry land. And then the Bible says in the 33rd chapter that the Lord spoke to Moses intimately The text says, face to face, he heard God's voice as a man would speak to his friend. So, wouldn't that be enough to hold him over? Why do you need more than that? Most people, if they have any kind of dramatic experience at all with God, would say, that was so wonderful, I'll just write books and go on television and talk about it for the rest of my life. But it wasn't enough for Moses. Even after all of those glorious experiences with God, he says, God, please show me your glory. Why? Here's why. I believe. 
Because no matter how knowledgeable you are theologically or how spiritually sophisticated you may be, at your very core is a God-given longing to see Him. Again, I understand the image is a bad thing. I don't want the image. I want the real deal. I want the upgrade. I want to see you. Whenever I would travel, when my son was young, I would take a little uh, picture frame with me. It was just open, simply. One side was my wife, Lenny, and the other side was a picture of Nate when he was just a kid. And wherever I'd go, I'd, I'd set that on my nightstand. So in the morning, before I would leave to whatever business I had, I could look at it, and when I'd come home, the last thing I could see before I fell asleep was their face, an image of them. I guarantee you that wasn't enough for me. I didn't look at that picture and go, oh, oh, that's good enough. I can stay here for like another year. I don't need anything else but just to be able to look at their picture. No, in looking at their picture, all that did was accentuate the loss that I had for the real deal. And I could talk to them on the phone, and that was good, but that didn't really satisfy me. All that did was create a thirst for their glory, to see them face to face. So, Moses is still not satisfied. And here's my point. Neither will you be until you arrive in glory. Now hear me. All of the great experiences that we get to experience as believers, and especially as Christian workers, and we hear these transformations. Or, there have been times, because I've been in some of the crusades and I've heard the praise band lead us in worship, there are times when it seems as if the presence of God is palpable. It's so strong. It's so glorious. But that's not enough. If it were enough, we'd all say, well, been there, done that, had that experience. I never need that again for the rest of my life. No, because we've experienced it once, we want it again and again and again. And the point the Scripture wants to make is that that deep longing will ultimately and only and fully be fulfilled when we see Christ face to face in glory in heaven. I want you to listen to the words of an author that speaks on, on this text. Tim Stafford writes, I believe this longing can only be fulfilled when our eyes are opened on the loving and glorious face of God. Such will someday be our joy. But not yet. The Bible does not hint that our intimacy with God can be satisfied through prayer or through ecstatic worship experiences or through the Bible. If Moses could not get what he wanted then we should not be too surprised if our own sense of incompleteness is there. Our longing is a mark of God's touch. We long to know Him completely because we have come to know Him in part. Now, I can't resist to add a footnote and say that Moses got his, air, his uh, prayer partially answered some years later when he was not on the Mount, Mount Sinai, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah, the Bible says in Luke chapter 9, saw Jesus appear in his glory. And if you want to see the glory of God, you look at Jesus Christ, and they saw Jesus appear in his glory. But that's not what Moses wanted at the time. He made a distinct request 
I want to see your glory. Now, he doesn't get that. God says, you can't have that. If you have that, you'll die. You can't handle it. So what does Moses get if God doesn't give him that request? Well, the story continues. The very next chapter, chapter 34, this is what the Lord says. Beginning in verse 5, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and, get this, proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So here's Moses asking God for his glory. God answers the prayer by not giving him what he wanted, but giving him not a sign from heaven, not a glorious apparition at that time, not a vision of heaven, but words. Words. God gives to Moses sort of a theology lesson, doesn't he? A ninefold description of his character to Moses. Lord, I want to see your glory. Moses, come here. Let me tell you about myself. And he proclaims the name of the Lord and then gives these attributes. As if to say, Moses, I know what you asked for, but I also know what you really need. You're asking for some visible, miraculous sign. I know that what you need is, is my word proclaimed. My word proclaimed. Have you discovered that God knows the difference between what you think you need and what God knows you need? And there are times where you say, Lord, I really need this. And God says, no, you don't, and you're not going to get it. I know exactly what you need, and here it is. We have an example with Paul the Apostle. He was certain that what he needed, because he had what he called a thorn in the flesh, he needed some kind of a healing from that, a deliverance from that. And so he prayed three times. He thought he needed it. And what did the Lord say? He said, my, my grace is enough. My grace is enough. It's sufficient for you. In fact, Paul, when you're weak, you tend to lean on me a whole lot more. And so my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And here's Moses. He thought he needed a visual manifestation of God's ultimate glory. And God says, Moses, come here. Let me tell you about myself. This is what I'm like. Oh, and by the way, that's really all you need. Now, this is where we, we enter into the life of faith from the life of sight. We live by faith and not by sight. Okay, fast forward for a minute to the New Testament. And you remember the story when those two disciples were on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem after Jesus had rose from the dead. They didn't know he had risen from the dead. And the story says their heads were down. They were bummed out. They were so sad that Jesus had died. There was no hope left. Jesus comes walking up incognito and starts talking to them. 
And Jesus says, why are you guys so sad? And they turn to him. This is the funny part. Are you a stranger around here? Have you not heard the things that have happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, this is classic. What things? As if he didn't know, but he wanted to hear it from them. And so they talked about Jesus and how sad they were and that he said he would rise from the dead, but it's now the third day. The Bible says, and beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus began to expound all of the things concerning himself. He gave them a Bible study. Here's Jesus, arisen from the dead, doesn't give them some kind of show. He doesn't say, hey, look, watch this. Stand back because it, it might be bright. It might hurt. Boom. He didn't do that. He gives them a Bible study. And do you remember what their reaction is? They turned to one another after Jesus left and said, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us along the way and opened up the scriptures to us? They got a good case of heartburn, biblical heartburn. Did not our hearts burn within us? Question, where did that burning of the heart come from? It wasn't while they were talking to him. It wasn't while they were watching him do something. It was while he was expounding to them the Bible. The Bible. The very Bible that they as Jewish children had been raised to listen to. They grew up in a Jewish home. They heard all those stories, but now they're listening to Jesus tell them those stories, and it was like opening the the windows to a dark room and all the light floods in, and they get it. They get it. They understand it. It makes sense to them. It all clicks, and they said, oh, it's like our hearts were burning within us as he spoke to us. You see, maybe they thought they needed a new revelation. Jesus was saying, you don't need that. What you need is a new application of the old revelation. And he gave to them the scriptures. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way? I know that you know this. But from time to time, we we need to be reminded that everything you and I ever need is found in the promises of God's book. Everything you need. That's what Peter said. He has given us everything that pertains to life and godly living through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Everything you need to pray for, everything you need to apply is found within the template, the roadmap of Scripture. Every now and then I meet Christians who they want more of this and more of that and more of the other thing and more experience that normal Christians don't have but they believe they should have. And God is saying, I've given you everything you need already. I heard about a, a man who went on a cruise. He'd always wanted to go on a cruise. He'd saved up all his life, and he finally got enough money, so he went and he bought a ticket. Well, here's his thinking. He thought, I have enough money for the ticket, but I don't have enough money to get all of the food that you get on the cruise ship, you know, those long lines of crab and lobster and beef and all those great salads. So... In his mind, he's thinking, okay, I have enough money, I bought the ticket, but I'm going to pack bread, peanut butter, and jelly. And he did. Went on with a whole suitcase of bread, peanut butter, and jelly. He checked in, got on the cruise ship, 
went to his hotel room, unpacked his clothes and his peanut butter. And lunchtime and dinner time, he'd walk by those long, sumptuous lines that wanted to reach out and grab him. He'd walk right past them to his room, and he'd butter up a piece of bread, put a little jam on it, and eat it. Well, he did this for two weeks. By the end of the two weeks, he couldn't take it any longer. He thought, I'll do anything to have just one meal on this cruise ship. He goes to a porter and he says, please, make me wash dishes, clean the decks, anything. But I've done this for two weeks, peanut butter and jelly. Please let me have just one meal and I'll work it off. And the porter looked at him in surprise. He goes, what are you talking about? Don't you know that when you buy a ticket for the boat, all the meals are included for free? It's a package deal. Well, it's what a bummer to hear that on the last day of the cruise. It was his all along. All he had to do was take it. I fear there's a lot of Christians who live that way. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. One of the great things that I, I admire about Dr. Billy Graham... Franklin, and all of you in this organization, has been the centrality of the Bible. I was watching a crusade, a televised crusade in black and white of Dr. Graham speaking in Florida. And what struck me about the crusade is as he opened it, Dr. Graham asked the question, how many of you here tonight brought your Bibles? And all these Bibles went up in the air. Probably 90% of the crowd at a crusade brought their Bibles. I was stunned because there's a lot of churches today where 90% of the people don't bring their Bibles to the church, let alone a crusade. How thankful I am that we're keeping God's Word front and center and the preaching of the gospel front and center and nothing is done without the Bible says. Now, thankful I am that in 1947, when Dr. Graham struggled with Scripture and he said to God, I don't understand everything in it. I don't have all the answers, but I accept by faith this book as your truth, your word. And how loudly, year after year, that message of authority rings across the world. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And God is saying to Moses, Moses, that's all you need he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Well, it ends, the story, at least on my part tonight, ends with a response. It begins with a revolt. That's the downgrade. They go for an idol. It continues with the request, show me your glory. I want the upgrade, but the real deal. It continues with God giving him a revelation of himself. And then the last phase is the response. It's in verse 8. One simple, short little verse after God said what he just said. And so Moses made haste, or he was quick in responding, and he bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. He worshiped. Here's Moses not getting what he asked God for, hearing what God's answer is, not what he wanted, and he worships. There's not a word where... Moses said, now wait a minute, God, I didn't sign up for this. That's not what I asked for. Man, I want the tingles. I want the emotion. I want the experience. 
he worshiped God. As if to resign himself in agreement with God, saying, you're right, God. It's not about Moses. It's not about what I want. It's about you. You're God, and I'm not. It's about you, and he worshiped the Lord at that spot. And I got to tell you, more and more, what was called the me generation, even years ago, has become a lot more me now than it used to be. It's all about what I want, how I feel, my felt needs, and less and less about who God is and what God wants. Several years ago at our church, it was a Sunday morning. It was probably 23 years now, and I probably was a little bit tired, and, and I probably wasn't answering the most graciously back to people in those days when they had concerns, but I met a couple after our second service, and they walked up, and I'll never forget it. I met this young preacher, and this man introduces himself and his wife, and he just sort of cocked himself back, and he said, well, we're here just to see what you have to offer. And I should have bit my tongue. I know that now. Should have just walked away and said, well, thanks. But I, I immediately said, when he said, we just want to see what you have to offer, I said, well, that's great, but I want to ask you a question. What do you have to offer? Because it's not about what I'm offering you or what you're offering me, but what we're offering God. And Moses is now understanding that. That's what the worship response is all about. Lord, it's about you and not about me. So that's the story. And I just want to give you three quick memorable takeaways from this. Number one, longing is part of loving. Longing is part of loving. That deep longing that you have to get closer to God, and as Moses put it, show me your glory, is a mark of God at work in your life. It's part of God's touch. God responds to your longing. It says in Hebrews eleven six, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So longing is a part of loving. But understand that the longing that you and I have won't be fully rewarded. We won't be fully satisfied, anything short of heaven when we see him. So it's not God saying no. It's just the Lord saying not yet. Every child understands what that is. Dad, can I drive? I never said to Nathan, no, never, though I've thought about it a few times. But I remember saying, not yet, you're only 12. There'll come a time when you can. Every December, those Christmas presents pile up under the tree. The glitter goes up and the smell of pine and candle wax fills homes and institutions and children can't wait for Christmas. And they'd love to open all their presents three days before Christmas. And a parent says, it's not no, it's just not yet. And so it is with this request. Lord, I want to see you. Not yet. So longing is a part of loving. Number two, worshiping is better than wondering. Instead of wondering, God, why don't you show me more things, and, and why don't I hear your voice like that person said they heard your voice? And Instead of wondering why your experience is what it is, how about worshiping God for what he's already done, how he's already revealed himself, 
And especially as God reveals himself to you in his word, any, any new uh, stone that it gets unturned, or you understand something more about God, in that attribute at that time, you say, Lord, I honor you and I worship you and I submit to you in that. Third and finally, invisible does not mean unavailable. Just because you can't see God, that's really not the issue. The the greater truth is that God can see you. I don't know where God is. Doesn't matter. God knows right where you're at. You remember Job when he was suffering and he really wanted some manifestation of God and he said, I go forward, I can't find God. I go backwards, he's not there. I cannot perceive him. But then Job said, here's the great part, but he knows the way that I take. And when I come through this, I will come forth as gold. He knows the road that I take. He knows the path that I take. Same with David. David wrote in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, behold, you are there. So invisible does not mean unavailable. That's where we enter into the life, not of sight, but of faith, and God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There was a family who went on vacation, and there was a thief who was watching their house to see them leave on vacation. So as soon as they left and went out of town, the thief picked the lock and went inside. It was pitch black, and the thief had a flashlight. As the thief was walking from room to room, he heard a voice that scared the daylights out of him. The voice said, I see you, and Jesus sees you. The thief stopped, didn't know what that voice was, walked a little bit more and heard the voice again, I see you, and Jesus sees you. Very nervous, he finally walked into the kitchen where he turned his flashlight. On the counter was a cage with a parrot. And the parrot said, I see you, and Jesus sees you. And so the thief turned on the light, relieved with a sigh, thinking, it's just a bird, I'm safe. And he notices as he looks at the counter with the cage that sitting down by the counter was a Doberman pitcher with its teeth showing in a crouched position And then the bird said, attack, Jesus, attack. (laughs) The real Jesus sees you in the dark. The real Jesus, our Lord and Savior, knows your every move. And as we sang this morning, knows your name and calls you by name and would certainly never trip you or attack you, but would lead you and guide you. And every time you and I enter that little step of the unknown, but we worship him by faith rather than by sight, we get upgraded a little more, a little closer, a little more satisfaction. Our appetite gets wet. It drives us forward. But one day, The reward will be, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful. Enjoy the reward of your Lord. 
part of that will be his glory. Heavenly Father, one day we will see the face of Jesus. Right now we see through a glass darkly, like, like looking at the sun. We can't take a direct stare. We'd have to put a, a piece of film or glass for us to be able to look at the sun. We cannot see your glory in its completeness. But you know what we need. And you've given us promises. And we found them to be true. And we grab a hold of every one of them by faith. And every time we do that, there is some kind of reward for those who seek you. One day we'll ultimately be upgraded. Until then, Father, I pray that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would always say your word is enough. We would always say the Bible says. And I pray, Lord, that your hand would remain upon this organization to be faithful to proclaim the truth, the revelation, and not the imagination of men. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.